Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the very courageous young church leader in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and National Socialism. He would be one of the first religious voices of opposition and would pay for that ultimately with his life. Today I'm going to talk with Dr. Stephen Plant from Cambridge University in the UK. Yes, that Cambridge. Uh, and we'll discuss uh, his unique contribution to Bonhoeffer scholarship, one that is very personal. Uh, and as we went along in this conversation that I think you'll find fascinating, we had a little bit of a technology glitch because, of course, I'm in Washington, D.C. He's in the U.K. We had a little Internet problem, so we had to do a little patching. And you're going to hear that around our discussion of his book, Letters to London, about this unique period of correspondence that Bonhoeffer had with a teenager, uh, when he was pastor uh, in Sydenham. So I didn't want you to think that the glitch was in Dr. Plant's uh, speech because he is a flawless and impeccable communicator. And I wanted to be sure that you knew where that problem was located. And it's not uh, with Dr. Plant, as you will certainly hear for yourself. So with that... Um, Here's my conversation with Stephen Plant. My guest today is Stephen Plant, Dean of Trinity Hall, one of the constituent colleges of the University of Cambridge, where he has been since 2010, and also teaches theology and ethics in the University Faculty of Divinity. His duties also include responsibility as a minister of the Church of England, for the college chapel. Prior to assuming his present role, Stephen taught at Durham University and for eight years trained people for ministry in the Cambridge Theological Federation. He has also worked in local ministry and as Europe Secretary for the British Methodist Church. Stephen, welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Rob. I have only two things to say about your bio. Uh, no three. One is it's quite impressive. Number two, I would call it quite Bonhoeffrian. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. But uh, And uh, thirdly, I love the connection to the British Methodist Church because I happen to be a Methodist minister in the okay. old line, a Methodist Episcopal Church, which has its roots way back uh, to when Wesley... Uh, made his visit to the United States, and uh, so it's it's uh, it's nice to connect with you on all of these matters, but particularly on Bonhoeffer. You've authored a number of books on Bonhoeffer as a subject. Uh, I'll mention them: uh, Bonhoeffer in the Outstanding Christian Thinkers series, uh, taking stock of Bonhoeffer, studies in biblical interpretation and ethics. Uh, religion, religious, religionlessness, it's a lot of isses, uh, and uh, contemporary Western culture, explorations in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Then you co-authored a German title with John uh, de Grouchy. Yeah. Uh, but the one that really captured me was Letters 
to London. And I want to go to that momentarily. But first, uh, this is uh, a casual conversation. Uh, and one of the things I know that our listeners enjoy is learning about our guests. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where you grew up? Uh, I take it you're a native of the UK? That's correct. So I was brought up in the north of England um, in an area of pretty high social deprivation, but my father mm. is a Methodist minister. I see. Um, and uh, I went to university uh, in Birmingham to study theology. And you, you're right to, to say that um, there's some sort of uh, um, visible pattern in my own life that somewhat resembles Bonhoeffer's insofar as um, both Bonhoeffer and I have always been uh, drawn in two competing directions that it's been hard to balance, which is um, that both he and I have been drawn uh, on the one hand to academic theology and on the other hand to uh, serve the church in ministry in one form or another. And Bonhoeffer never really properly resolved um, his his sense of being called in both those directions, and I'm not sure I have either. Um, so yes, yeah, so after graduation, mm. uh, I did work for a while in international development just briefly, and then returned to train for ministry in Cambridge, which is where I then um, undertook doctoral studies in uh, Bonhoeffer's theology and ethics. Um, at, at a time when really very, very few people were interested in Bonhoeffer in the UK. This was the late 1980s. Um, and I was one of only two, as far as I'm aware, one of only two people in the UK doing Bonhoeffer PhDs at that point in time. And the other was a German working in Scotland. So it was a pretty lonely furrow in many ways. Um, Bonhoeffer was pretty out of fashion. Um, but it did have a lot of advantages because it meant that um, I was working in an area a study, which was Bonhoeffer's Ethics, which at that point, believe it or not, very few people had worked on. So I was that is hard in, to believe. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the new edition, the, the current edition, the critical edition hadn't been produced, um, and, and the Ethics were not thought to be perhaps Bonhoeffer's most central or important book. So for me to work on them was terrific. And, of course, at, in, at that point in time, the late 1980s, a lot of the key players in Bonhoeffer's life were still around. So oh, I was sure. a of former students. Um, Eberhard Baker and I uh, met on a number of occasions. Um, that's Bonhoeffer's best friend to whom the prison letters were written. And um, uh, in those days, all the manuscripts were kept in Eberhardt's study uh, mm. in a small village outside uh, Bonn in, in, in Germany. So if you wanted to see the manuscripts, you had to travel to Bonn and arrange with Eberhardt uh, and his wife Renata Baker, who was uh, Bonhoeffer's niece, to go and uh, see them and they would provide lunch for you and you'd sit in his study and, and read, uh, read these manuscripts which, are, which have now since been relocated to the Stadtarchiv in, in Berlin. Mm. So it was, it was a kind of a, uh, a magical thing to do really. Um, no doubt. No doubt. In fact, you're reminding me of my experience when I went to the church in London, uh, the German congregation. Yeah. Uh, and I always mispronounced it as Sydenham. It, 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 it's that's not correct. Yeah. It's Sydenham, right? Sydenham, yeah. So it's Sydenham. And uh, the clerk there, you probably know what I'm about to say, uh, but pulled out of uh, a little vault in a storage closet. Uh, Bonhoeffer's um, uh, Latin imitatio. Yes. 
uh, well, which he had with him in prison. It's funny you should say that because one of the th I was a very keen research student and I used to kind of volunteer for various jobs um, that wanted doing and one of the jobs I did was to catalogue the archives there so that book had previously not properly been catalogued so I was the, I was the, ah. really the first person to do that. Oh my goodness. 89 or something. Bravo. Uh, <laughs> and I was yes. so happy. It, it, it was magical. So I can only imagine how much more so it was for you looking at so much material, and particularly at uh, Baker's uh, own home. Uh, that takes you back. And the furniture, in time. of course, the furniture in Baker's household. A lot of it had been inherited from the Bonhoeffer family. So this, these, you were, you know, you'd, you'd sit and sit and have your morning coffee on on chairs that Bonhoeffer's Bonifer sat on and so on. It was it was it was very magical. Um, and it's funny because I could have just as easily stayed in Cambridge. Um, even at that time, all the manuscripts had been um, copied onto microfiche, which is the old technology, of course, in those days. Um, Photographic technology, right? Exactly. And you could sit in you could sit in the University Library in Cambridge and look at microfiche copies of all the manuscripts. And I could just have done that. Um, but I was struggling to, to get to grips with the thesis, and I had a very sensible supervisor, uh, a man called uh, Nicholas Segovsky, and um, he, he took me for a long walk after my first year of research and said, uh, basically, I, I don't know where you're going with this, and I don't think you do either. Mm. And we both sort of looked at each other. And he said, look, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to Germany, and you're going to sit at Bonhoeffer's desk in Berlin and translate the ethics, which is exactly oh. what I then did. So I went to um, the Bonhoeffer house uh, with, Eberhard, uh, with a letter from Eberhard Baker saying, um, please, please look after this student. And I was given permission basically to sit at the desk where Bonhoeffer's ethics, at least the later manuscripts in the ethics, had been uh, written and, and do my own translation of them. And of course, working, you know, by the time I'd done my own translation of the ethics, I, I burrowed down beneath the language, figured out all the different um, ramifications and things I'd learned a bit. I was learning German as I went along, really. Um, and the thesis more or less produced itself as a consequence of that close reading. My goodness. And uh, it's hard enough for me uh, to read and reread ethics in English. Uh, I really can't imagine tackling it in German and translating it. Um, and, and at the desk, which bears that infamous cigarette burn. Yes. Is that I, right? I heard one of your I haven't seen it. One I haven't of your seen that desk. Talking about that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness. But it's important, it's important. Some of that's important to imagination, I think. It, it, it kind of, academic research isn't just about um, thinking clearly and, and so on. A lot of it's about um, stimulating your creative imagination. Mm. Um, and I found... I found it just invaluable to spend time in Germany and and uh, 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 you know meet meet people who Bonhoeffer knew his former students and so on and talk with them about him. I found that very stimulating. No doubt, and and uh, because you say that, I'll I'll take you back again just to a a question about the beginning of your interest in Bonhoeffer. Was it a personal interest as much as an academic interest? Yes, always. So my, I, I mentioned earlier my, my parents, um, my father was a Methodist minister, my parents committed Christians. And um, uh, I uh, owe, owe obviously a lot 
to them. But when I arrived at university, um, aged 18 or so, I, I needed to reinvent myself. I needed to find a way to be my own kind of person and my own kind of Christian. Mm. And um, my parents, my father, who um, is, is something of a kind of classicist and historian, has never had much interest in Christian theology, even though he's a pastor. Um, and so I arrived really hungry, but not sure what it was I was hungry for. And um, uh, I kind of um, drifted about a bit for my first year of study. And then at some point in my second year of study, I was writing a, um, an essay on Boniface's letters and papers from prison. And I came, became completely entranced by that text, more than by, I think, anything else I'd ever read. And um, uh, read it virtually in a sitting. And, it, and, it, and I think it was um, so something you've said yourself. It, it's that mix of um, uh, deep theology and real life, daily life, talking about food and, and, and missing people and friends and a bit of poetry here and an attempt at a play and not a very good player. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but somebody who who, you, who came alive as a person, and I think that woke me up um, uh, theologically in a way in a way nothing really before that had done. And I was lucky enough, even as an undergraduate, to have a, a teacher, a man called Dan Hardy, um, who, when he said, "What are you going to do next?" and I told him I was going to train for ministry, going to be a, a Methodist minister. I originally, was a Methodist minister before becoming Anglican, and. Um, he said, well, what are you going to do as you, as you train? And I said, well, I'll only do one year's training because I'll already have a theology degree. And he said, that won't do. So while I sat there, he picked up the phone and telephoned the Regis professor, the senior chair in Cambridge, and said, I've got somebody here who you need to talk to. And he put me in touch. And I was, a week later, I was being interviewed for doctoral research oh. in Cambridge. So oh it, was kind of, it was somebody who... Um, just saw something in in my curiosity, but also saw something, an, an opportunity for the church, really to, to see somebody who you know who might might have the possibility to um, to go a bit further with their theological thinking and, and research. So I was very lucky with all of that. I should say, uh, I should say, and and that takes me uh, to something I had highlighted in my research on you. Uh, and that was a comment by Keith Clements, editor of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, London, 33 to 35, which is part of the works, volume 13. And he writes this about your book, Letters to London, on this unique correspondence of Bonhoeffer's uh, with a young man there. Here we see the brilliant theologian and courageous resistor against Hitler as no less concerned to be a caring pastor and personal mentor of a young person starting to face the uncertainties of his age. And there's that common point between you and Bonhoeffer, your, your experiences, that tension between the pastoral and the academic. And it's one of the things that drew me to your book, because it does show this other side of Bonhoeffer, and I've long said, if you only know Bonhoeffer as either the brilliant theologian uh, or the martyr, then you really actually only know a very small part of Bonhoeffer because he was so much more. How have you treated him? I mean, I know 
you've treated the full spectrum of Bonhoeffer in your uh, published work. Can you tell us a little bit how it has unfolded over time and, and how you've treated these different aspects to him? Yeah, I guess for me, um, the, the, the attraction to Bonhoeffer has always been uh, that he roots his theology in the same places I think theology ought always to be rooted. He, he roots it in the life of the church so that he sees theology as a, a discipline that belongs primarily to and for the church um, in its service to the world. Um, he, he doesn't have sharp distinctions between theology and ethics. Uh, he roots it in a close personal relationship with Jesus and um, finds scripture or the Bible to be the, the primary source for him. And of course, all that um, I immediately recognized from my, uh, my Methodist, my evangelical upbringing, so to speak. So I, f I found that very, I've always found him a very congenial person. Um, but as I've, as I've proceeded with it, my interests have also focused a little bit on his political thinking. So I've written two on um, Bonhoeffer as a political thinker um, and also written, I suppose, um, a kind of a, a, a more critical piece about his involvement in the assassination attempt mm -hmm. um, against on, on Hitler's, on Adolf Hitler's life. Uh, I mean, as you know, Rob, his, his role was... Um, sort of so to speak at one side of the um plot in that he uh was tasked with establishing if he could how the allies would react to a military coup mm. um but it was enough of course to know about the plot to put your life in jeopardy which is what happened in his case um so i'm not minimizing the risk if i say that he was um one of several hundred people who knew about the plot um um, but I, I still have reservations, and this is something one says slightly quietly in the circles of Bonhoeffer scholarship, but I still have reservations about whether an assassination was the proper way forward. Mm. I think that there were other options available in the, in the 1940s, um, and in fact, we can see that in a parallel resistance circle or group of resistors, the Kreisau Circle. Um, and what they did was to plan for a post-war future for Germany. That, by the way, was enough to cost several of them their lives as well. Um, but they, they did not think that killing Hitler was the proper basis for a post-war German uh, constitution and a post-war German state. And I, I, I'm inclined to think that the um, difficult as it must have been, that Bonhoeffer was right to take opportunity and responsibility. He was correct to think it was his responsibility to do something, but I'm not certain that a, a coup by the by senior military figures uh, in 1944 was 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 the right thing to do. Uh, well, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the work of Nation of uh, yes. Michael Thiessen Nation, and uh, it, it would would yours reflect a similar opinion as his, or or something distinctly different? I mean, well, I know he's sort of making the case that Bonhoeffer either was or should have remained a pacifist uh, and not is, engaged in violent Yes, that's action. one of the things he's saying. I think, I think he's also making uh, an argument about the 
the reliability of the historical evidence that Bonhoeffer was in fact ever involved in the plot. Oh, right, of course. Um, of course. And I think I would disagree with him on that point. I'm, I'm quite certain that Bonhoeffer knew of the plot and was involved, just as I'm certain that Eberhard Baker was. Um, mm. uh, um, and... Uh, but I, but I, my, my, the point I was just making was that I, I'm not not sure that there were there were not other options. I think Bonhoeffer thought his his only options were to do nothing, or to be involved in an assassination attempt or in a coup, and I think other options were available. I, I have to agree with you there. I I've read him as kind of straining to justify that, um, but uh, not to get. Too, too uh, distracted by that. I do want to ask you where we can find more of your exploration of that. Is that in uh, which volume or, or have so you the, published? The, the, there's a chapter in the book, Taking Stock of Bonhoeffer, where I contrast the Kreisau circle and the circle of resistance in which Bonhoeffer was involved. That's the place where I've dealt with some of that. Um, All right. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm determined to pick up your whole library now, uh, <laughs> and I think uh, and I'll you know, be sharing that. You know, it's as you know, it's 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 all too easy to say these things with hindsight. Of course, in Bonhoeffer's sure. context, um, he's he's feeling his way morally through the, the really the most difficult circumstances. Um, so it's not to express, um, you know, critical moral judgment. Really, it's just just to say that. Um, Perhaps the weather options, I think, is as, as far as I want to put it. Mm, mm. Well, thank you uh, for st stimulating that, that thought. What about the other volumes? Um, maybe give us just a little summary of what you treat sure. uh, so, under each title. Well, let, let's, take, um, let's take the one that caught your interest, caught your eye most, um, which is, I suppose, the shortest of them, which is the, the volume of Letters to London. So the story here was a, a boy called Ernst Cromwell, um, and one letter to his father as well. Um, and these had been rediscovered while they were moving Ernst Cromwell from his long-standing family home uh, into more secure accommodation um, as, he, as he sort of approached 90 years of age. And they'd found these letters basically stored away in the fly leaves or between the pages of a number of books. And they'd not quite been forgotten but they certainly hadn't been looked at for a long time and Ernst himself had thought they wouldn't be of much interest um, so I could see I could see on the table this kind of plastic file and I and I recognized the handwriting um, and we were having a chat over coffee and it, it was that strange moment when I knew I knew exactly that these were Bonhoeffer's letters um, because I, I recognized the handwriting and, I, and I, I was so desperate to read them and eventually they we, we finished our conversation and, and they, they um, gave me some copies and I went out to the car park and I sat in the car park and read all these letters. Um, and even though the time didn't work out very well with the States, I telephoned um, Clifford Green in yeah. the States, who's a very important Bonhoeffer scholar, from my car and said, here's what I'm looking at. I was so excited. I mean, it, it, I've had occasions in my scholarship where I've turned up a postcard here or a book with a dedication in there. I found bits and bobs by Karl Barth in archives that had not previously been known, but nothing of nothing really of quite this interest. Um, and then uh, Ernst Cromwell was at that stage still alive, so I was able to meet with him and interview him. And his daughter-in-law, Tony Burroughs Cromwell and I, 
then edited the letters together, um, adding uh, footnotes to help understand them um, and an introduction to to them. Cromwell's own story, of course, is interesting enough because he was of Jewish origin and was a, a refugee in Germany. Um, because of that, his father was Jewish. Hmm. And then he was interned um, after um, the defeat of the British army in France in 1940. He was interned with all other Germans um, and then was able to join, to, to leave internment by joining the British army um, and then uh, served uh, in Normandy uh, at, Dunk at um, D-Day. He was responsible for burying the dead initially and then became an intelligence officer in Germany. So uh, he had a fascinating life in his own right. Um, but the... Um, you know, what emerges, just as you said, what emerges from the letters um, is this rather informal, rather unusual and relaxed relationship between the young um, teenager and Bonhoeffer who prepared him for confirmation. And in particular, I think the role of the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, um, which was at the heart of their conversations preparing Ernst for confirmation, and essentially all they did was to just talk their way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I think that's especially interesting is that this is the turning point in Boniface's life, or an, an important turning point, when he's preparing to begin the seminary in Finkenwalde. And he knows very, um, with great sureness, he knows that there is a time coming when the church is likely to be persecuted. And he turns to the Sermon on the Mount as a way of preparing himself and others for a new kind of Christian life, a new kind of Christian experience in which the church has to go as a, in a kind of way underground um, and to side with the victims and to be um, uncomfortably positioned in relation to, uh, to, to German life. So it's a very... Though they're you know quite brief letters and some of them are not terribly interesting, there are passages in them that are really I find very powerful and moving. Well, offering as you do here that framework, uh, I think this is a terrific time to read letters to London because of the current state of affairs. Uh, we're in lockdown. Uh, most of us are unable to gather with the church in person, certainly in sanctuaries. I don't know what's happening there in the UK, but here most churches remain closed. Yeah, here too. So it's just a little glimpse of the, you know, a hint at what it is for the church to go underground and maybe get that glimpse of the under, from the underside. Um, so I'm going to commend it as a spiritual exercise during the time of COVID-19 <laughs> to read letters to London. And uh, I think it's available across the board, right? I mean, just it wherever is, books uh, are sold. Published by Whitman and Stock in, in the United States. Right, right. Uh, in fact, you remind me that I've asked them for all your titles. That's just a whisper. <laughs> but uh, you know, you're, you're right, because the thing, I suppose my lockdown experience has been um, reconnecting on a regular basis with friends, so that some of the hmm. some of my best friends are the people I trained for ministry with, and we've been meeting weekly and we're reading theology together and talking about it in a way we haven't done for a long time. Um, and Bonifer 
to Ernst Cromwell and of course uh, in his much better left correspondence with with Eberhard Baker while he's in Tegel prison um, is emphasizing the importance of friendship um, so you know he says he says movingly in the letters to London that he's he's lost friends in consequence of his position with respect to the Nazis so people he'd known for 10 years as close friends he'd, he'd broken relationships with so he he found that the crisis situation um uh sharpened his sense of who your friends were mm. it also sharpened the sense of the value of the friends that you did have and the new friends that you made uh in this unusual circumstance and i guess lockdown without being obviously quite so politically charged or dangerous as all that um does have something of that rediscovery of of friends that um and in fact, I, I begin to think that some, I've, got about, I've got two books on the go, one of which I'm hoping to finish this summer and then the other of which to finish next year. Tell the book I want to write after that is going to be on friendship. I think it's a neglected uh, Christian topic now. And a wonderful lesson for us to learn uh, from Bonhoeffer. Will you be introducing Bonhoeffer in that treatment yeah, of friendship? Very, very likely. Um, but there, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of, there are earlier texts as well. There's a very, very beautiful text by um, a theologian who um, lived not very far from where I grew up in a place called Revo, Revo Abbey, um, a man called Aylred of Revo, um, a 12th century book, which is really very lovely, called Spiritual Friendship. Um, so I, I think there's a lot to be said here, and it's a neglected idea, the idea that friends are, one, are blessings that one has from God, in whom, you know, and that friendship is, is in a way the closest kind of love to the love that God shows us and you'll, you'll recall Jesus's um, comments to his disciples on the night of his arrest in which he, he says, you know, I, I do not call you servants, I call you friends. And that, that closeness of relationship, um, it seems to me is, it might be something I explore in a couple of years time when I finish my present writing projects. <laughs> right, it's one of the reasons I've always been struck by that poignant and, you know, brief, I think it may be the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept yeah. from the Gospel of John, yeah. and that was for a friend, yeah. Lazarus, for his friend. Yeah. I mean, you read the context, that's how important a friend was to Christ himself. Yeah. Um, well, before we leave talk of books, um, can you just say a word about uh, I, I stumbled over the title, but not over my curiosity about uh, its content and religion, religionlessness, and contemporary Western culture. Can you say just a brief word about that title? I'm not sure that's one of mine, unless it's. Um, oh, it might oh, be. A collected, it, it might be um, a, a collected edition. Yes, it's a it's a collection of essays I edited with a colleague of mine. Okay, um, right. So Explorations I, in Dietrich yeah. Bonhoeffer. So this, we have um, a series called International Bonhoeffer Interpretations, which produces about two books a year, um, often of some one or two single-authored books, but many are collections of conference papers, um, and that's one of those. Um, so yes, it, it, in fact, it, I, it just gives me the opportunity to say that often short essays are peculiarly apt for Bonhoeffer, for mm. whom so much of his writing was unfinished. His, his ethics were incomplete, um, and the letters and papers from prison are fragmentary. Um, his Christology lectures are unfinished, and, and 
taken from student notes and so on. So often there's something especially apt with respect to, to the way Boniface theology unfolded, partly because he's writing in these very fragmentary political contexts, this time mm. of great change, and because he's oscillating between local ministry, church ministry, and the academy. He, apart from his PhD thesis, and then the thesis he wrote to qualify as a lecturer, much of his writing is um, uh, quite fragmentary. So, yes, a lot of sort of stuff I've done on Bonifer has been essays and chapters of books rather than full monographs. Yeah, perhaps uh, one could make a fair argument that, in a way, Bonhoeffer was an essayist, I mean, yeah, of sorts. Exactly. Uh, that's how he treated or approached so much of his writing. Uh, well, good for you. I want to. I, I want to get that title as well, and, and I'll tell you why. What What really uh, drew my attention to it was the reference to religionlessness, because I wonder if that part of Bonhoeffer's product, if you will, um, won't become very relevant in the time after global this global pandemic of COVID nineteen that the church is even looking at itself differently and its communication of the gospel and so on. And I, I wonder if suddenly that's going to become very relevant for us uh, again. I think that's right. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, or well, I'm sure you do all the time, why we're still talking about Bonham for 70 years after his death. Yeah. So many of his contemporaries are, who were, who were far better known in the 1930s and 40s no longer read or spoken of. What is it in Boniface's writing that continues to have things to contribute to um, the life of the church and the life of theology today? And I'm sure you're right that one of the things he, uh, uh, one of the resonances that there is particularly between Boniface's thought and our own situation is the description of um, uh, Christianity on the edge of society um, but of God at the centre of the world. So this is what Boniface feeling his way towards in the prison letters, still in some fragmentary way, still trying out some thinking um, about how the church might cope in what, in what he calls a world come of age, uh, a religionless world, a world in which um, people carry on as if God, uh, in a sense, was not was not really didn't matter much. Um, and I guess that's increasing the situation in the states, isn't it? As as very much so. goes through um, seismic change uh, in the United States, a change in a sense which in the UK we've had since the 1960s. It's been a, um, basically my entire life has been one in which the church has been losing position, losing place. And um, Bonhoeffer helps us realize that perhaps that's something in a way not to regret, but to embrace, to, to find ways of being faithful disciples when one is in a minority. Well, as we like to say in my uh, humble American evangelical tradition, that will preach, brother, that will <laughs> preach. Uh, what a delight to talk with you, uh, Stephen Plant, uh, professor, uh, pastor, uh, are you actually a chaplain at, uh, at, at the university? Yes, Cambridge is a bit odd in this respect. Um, so the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a university that's made up of 30 or so colleges, 
many of which have historic foundations. So my own college was founded, founded in 1350. <laughs> and until the Reformation, um, trained clergy, essentially. It was a, um, a college in which people lived in a monastic community. Um, so the, there's a chapel right in the centre of the college um, that dates from 1350. And we have uh, services in there, at least we have did so before COVID-19 lockdown. Um, and we're, um, you know, we, we have a, a very fine choir and uh, continue to to put uh, Christian prayer and worship at the heart of what is now a multi-faith, uh, uh, um, multicultural academic institution. Well, you reflect uh, so much uh, the subject of your of so much of your interest, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his ministry experience, his life experience, uh, the way he approached his theology and his pastoral work. I'm just uh, so grateful to get to know you, to discover you. I'm sorry I was so late to find you, uh, but I'm sure glad I have. And well, thank I think you. Thank you for I, your interest, and and I and I. Um, would encourage anybody who uh, who does want to look at the books to get in touch if they if they have any questions about it. And um, I wish you every success with the institute too. Um, I think that Bonhoff has a lot to contribute uh, in a city uh, like Washington and and further afield uh, to to your work in thinking through how faith can be made uh, to speak into into situations that really matter. Well, if we have any success in accomplishing that you will have made a very rich contribution to it just through this conversation thank you i hope it won't be the last one and i intended to get to cambridge just back in april uh to speak at a conference there but of course the pandemic scuttled all of that i hope to get there in april of next year well then we'll see and you then yeah, I will definitely knock on your door and uh, maybe we can explore doing more together. But thank you so much for what you've contributed thank to you. the legacy we all benefit from. And, uh, and I will talk with you again, Stephen Plant. Thank you. <laughs>